Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Thanks for joining us on The Roy Green Show podcast. I spoke with Scott Thomas, the father of 18-year-old Evan, who was a forward for the Humboldt Broncos. And I spoke with Mr. Thomas about the sentence handed down to Jaskaret Singh Sidhu by the judge earlier this week. Also, joining us on the program, Andrew Scheer, the Conservative Party leader. What a week in Ottawa with uh, Selena Cesar Chavan leaving the Liberal caucus. Jane Philpott, the former minister, saying there's much more still to be heard about SNC. And uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould saying she's going to make available files from her testimony at the committee last month. And then we had the CEO of SNC saying it's never been about 9,000 jobs. Kind of leaves the prime minister exposed. What did Andrew Scheer say? You're going to hear that. Also coming up, Fran Coombs, managing editor for Rasmussen Reports and former editor of the Washington Times on the Mueller Report, which says no more indictments. And Leisha Corbella, columnist with the Calgary Herald on the Alberta provincial election. That and more is what you can hear on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. But this country's attention yesterday, and I think still today and going forward needs to be, on what happened in the Saskatchewan courtroom, because the impact of what happened in that courtroom, the judge's decision, will have the, I believe, possibility, and it has to go beyond that, it has to be a reality, for significant change to occur in licensing of semi-truck drivers, in uh, dealing with companies, that appear on the horizon and then disappear with drivers who are in no way qualified to handle these massive uh, trucks they're they're driving out on the roads with with everybody else. And so we paid attention in Saskatchewan yesterday when Jaskarit Singh Sidhu, the semi-truck driver responsible for the crash between the truck he was driving and the Humboldt Broncos bus, was sentenced to eight years in prison. 16 people were killed, 13 more were injured, and Singh Sidhu was sentenced to eight years for each count of causing death and five years for each count of bodily harm. And then we get to the fact which is a reality in this country quite regularly, the sentences are served concurrently. Scott Thomas is the father of 18-year-old Evan, who was a forward for the Broncos, Mr. Thomas had spoken with Singh Sidhu after the uh, truck driver pled guilty, and we've had the privilege of speaking with Mr. Thomas on several occasions now over the last year. Scott, thank you so much for making time for us today. And and how are you feeling after the after the day in court yesterday? Did was it essentially what you had hoped, what you had expected? Thanks for having me, uh, Roy. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you today. Yesterday, yeah, I was. I wasn't in court yesterday. I was traveling yesterday. I had a trip planned long before Judge Cardinal uh, announced that the twenty second would be the date. But I certainly paid attention, uh, followed it through Twitter, and uh, and talked to lots of families over there. It was um, it was what I expected. I 
I'm no legal expert, but I, I was pretty aware of the possibilities that could come out of that. Uh, the, the Crown asked for 10. Uh, the defence asked for, well, they didn't make a formal submission, but they were kind of hoping for a year, year and a half. And so we, I knew that it would be somewhere in the middle. And, and uh, yeah, I, I kind of expected to be in that eight-year eight, eight range because I did a little bit of research on Judge Cardinal, and I, I knew she wasn't going to be afraid to, to push push things a little bit because she's a strong brave woman and uh i i can't say i was surprised and or disappointed in the sense i figured it would kind of be you you liked the way she addressed the situation in court and the question then becomes what ultimately is fair and and what in fact does then set uh, a deterrent level and that's where the sentencing comes in yeah I thought the language she used was very powerful. The part about uh, taking back control of our roads and stopping the carnage. Um, you know, I think clearly she wanted to, like you said in your preamble there, as upset as I am with Mr. Sidhu and the problems above him, the problems with the companies that employ these guys and send them out with little to no training in places of the world that they've never been before. And as far as I can tell right now, this is over now. Like nothing's going to happen to that. The owner of the company that put him out there. Like I'd be embarrassed if he was one of my employees and uh, to have put him in a position to do what he did. Like it's, there's just no accountability there. Um, eight years concurrent sentences, uh, six months per per death. I mean, you try and divide that math in so many different ways. It's just hard to make sense of it. And. I mean, Judge Cardinal did what she could. She set precedent. And this is a legal precedent, and it's hard to believe that an eight-year sentence for killing six people sets precedent. Like it just so it's hard to it's hard to understand on a lot of levels. And you know, Scott, I remember the first time we talked, and and you told us in that conversation that the tragedy which engulfed your family and families of loved ones on the Broncos team bus was a quintessential Canadian experience, the bus road trip. This is what happens in this country. It's what we do in a huge country with a relatively small population. I've thought about that many times. It, it was. It's, and I think that's what hit Canadians so hard. Every one of us has put our kids, probably the significant majority of us, put our kids on a hockey bus, let alone a cadet's bus or a band's bus or a baseball bus, every one of us. So we've got a lot of kilometers to travel, and, and that's how we get our kids to events. So it's, And that's the safe zone. I mean, so much happens, especially in junior hockey. You know, you get out, the game starts, and there's some pressures on you there, but then when the game's over or on the way to the game, like the boys and Dana were, that's their safe zone. That's where they that's where they get to be kids. And, uh, and then to have that happen, it just... It, it still rips my heart out. Yeah. Scott, do you have confidence in the politicians following through on what they've promised? I mean, I know they've taken initial steps, but do you have confidence they're going to follow through and create the kind of dynamic and environment on the roads which will, will in fact, pay tribute to your son, Evan, and everyone who is impacted uh, from, the, from the humble Broncos family, uh, that they'll actually go ahead and, and do what needs to be done? You know, I have... I have confidence in Canadians, and I know when you and I talked before off the air, and we still see it every day, we get letters in the mail from strangers. We got a letter the other day from someone in Halifax, just mailed us a letter, and so I know how much this affects Canadians. I think every one of us realizes there's a problem out there, that the 
entry-level training for truck drivers is an embarrassment to our our society and to our government. I, I hope that I know our provincial governments are trying to get stuff done. I know in Saskatchewan we brought in some mandatory entry-level stuff. I, I still don't think it's enough. Do I have faith that the that the federal government's going to get involved? I don't. Every time Minister Garneau spoke about it, he's he's sloughed it off and pushed it back in the provinces. Well, we need some federal leadership on this. Like, there should be training for truck drivers like there is for airplane pilots, in my opinion. I mean, airplane pilots can wipe. Something goes wrong and that could end 30 lives well Mr. Sidhu could have easily ended 30 lives that day I mean we're lucky he was only 16 and I mean there needs to be man the, the federal government has to get involved and show some leadership on this so no I don't have faith in the federal government I have faith in Canadians to keep pushing this and, and hopefully hopefully Mr. Garneau and, and the feds actually pay some attention to it you know, unfortunately, again, what happens is that you, as a as Evan's father, and you have victims and family members of victims stepping up and trying to make uh, a situation safer, more safe, for the people in the country. And when it's a role that should be uh, really with determination attacked by the politicians we hire to do that kind of work for us, to to see what happened in a tragic circumstance and address it and do their very, very best to make sure that a similar situation does not recur. But it's not what we see. It's just not what we see. And I understand you're, you're doubting them, Scott, but I think in this instance, in this case, your families have so connected at such a visceral and heartfelt level with Canadians right across this country that the politicians are going to be reminded what their responsibility is. Well, I, I hope so. And I mean, this tragedy has brought all 29 of us together in a, a very deep and meaningful way. And we're, I mean, as you can see in the reaction from the sentencing, there's a wide range of reactions to that. And that's understandable. But the things that we're totally united on and the things we've have so much respect for each other for are the changes that we want to see going forward. Every one of us agrees that there has to be mandatory entry-level training. There has to be seatbelts on buses. There has to be safer roads and intersections in Saskatchewan in particular and probably all across the country. We need to pay more attention to these things. I mean, these are the things that we're going to continue to advocate for and and um, we're going to consistently find ways to get that message out there and, and hope you know continue to put some pressure on the governments because um, we know how Canadians feel. They, they continue to tell us. Like I said, we're, we're still getting letters. Yeah. And, um, as, you, as you advocate, you're going to have millions of Canadians standing right beside you. Well, we appreciate that. And uh, I know at times I said it's hard to uh, acknowledge that something good can come out of the death of my son. I said sometimes I try and use language that, yeah, that's not a bad thing. You know, it's not a bad thing they're training drivers better. It's not a bad thing, but... You know, I'm starting to come to the realization that maybe some good things can come from this, that that when those souls exploded across the landscape, they can positively affect change. I, I know it's made a lot, a lot more people more compassionate. I, it's a, you know, I walk through Saskatoon Airport and someone sees me and recognizes me, just gives me a hug. I mean, total strangers. I mean, that's it's definitely made Canadians more compassionate towards me and I think to other people too. I know... There's a lot of human emotion out there, and this is an impactful event for sure. Indeed. Scott, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. I know why you're doing it. You want to make sure that the message is sent and received 
by the people who have not only the opportunity but also the responsibility to improve the realities on the road and get at it now. Thank you, Scott. And uh, again, heartfelt condolences from everyone in this country to you and your family and the entire humble Broncos family. Well, thanks for having me, Roy. And uh, thanks to all the Canadians that continue to keep us close to their hearts. Okay, we'll talk again. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Roy. Bye-bye. Scott Thomas. So the impression that Mr. Garneau has made on Mr. Thomas has not been exactly positive. And that's not anyone's responsibility other than Mr. Garneau's, the transport minister, federally. That's your responsibility, minister. Andrew Scheer joins us, the Conservative Party leader. Mr. Scheer, thank you for the time. Have you ever seen a week like this one in your political career? Uh, not at all. I have been a member of Parliament since 2004. I have never seen uh, what we saw this week. You know, we uh, let's just back up a little bit and, and remember that Justin Trudeau's first response to the allegations that were in, uh, exposed in the Global Mail were that the allegations were false and that Jody Wilson-Raybould never went to him with any problems and that he never put pressure on her. Uh, well, we now know that wasn't true. He's lost two senior cabinet ministers. He lost his principal advisor. And this week started off, it seems like a, a lifetime ago, but the resignation of the clerk of the Privy Council. And uh, that prompted, a, that led right into uh, $41 billion of new spending, uh, with the budget trying to change the channel from the scandal, the Liberal-dominated Justice Committee shutting it down, uh, shutting down the only public investigation, and now further efforts by Ms. Philpott to get the story out, and Trudeau still not letting her do it. I've never seen anything like it. No, and then you have the CEO of uh, Lavlan, SSC Lavlan, giving an interview to the Canadian press and saying as far as they were concerned and uh, the request for remediation or their effort to get a remediation instead of a criminal trial had nothing to do with the 9,000 jobs. That, that was a bombshell, Roy. You know, and as do I, because I was in the House of Commons when he said it time and time again, Justin Trudeau claiming that he was motivated by those jobs, that he said that they were at risk, that the head office could move to Montreal, uh, out of Montreal. And you're right, the CEO of SNC-Lavalin point blank said that he never said that to anybody in the government. And when he was asked where, they might, where Trudeau might have got that idea, he literally said, I don't know why people make stuff up. That is unbelievable. And what struck me about his interview, the, uh, the CEO of SNC-Lavalin, he seems to know the law better than Justin Trudeau because he went on to say the law prevents the prosecutor from looking at economic impacts. And so they never made that case to the government They were or to the prosecutor. They were only focusing on, on complying. So Justin Trudeau's last remaining explanation has been completely shattered. What do you make of the fact that, as you pointed out, two senior cabinet ministers, two very senior cabinet ministers, Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, left the cabinet? Both Well, Dr. Philpott saying that she had uh, lost confidence in uh, the government's handling of the SNC case. Jody Wilson-Raybould saying she had a lot more to say and uh, now has written that letter to Anthony Housefather, the 
chair of the Justice Committee, declaring she'll make text and emails she referenced in her Justice Committee testimony available to the committee. What, what do you make? What do you think is going on within within that party? I mean, he can't. Mr. Trudeau can't dismiss Jane Philpott or Jody Wilson-Raybould because that would just create more trouble. What What do you think is going on in, in, inside that party? Uh, well, I, I believe there's a there's a cover up, and I believe that Justin Trudeau has made the political calculation that the pain of the cover up, the pain of the the the, the, the almost weekly resignation and the, the almost daily revelation of new information, that the pain of all that, all the the media criticism, the the public back, backlash, that all of that is better for him than the truth itself coming out. And that tells me that there must be something that he's pretty desperate to hide. Uh, he was, again, yesterday saying that nothing is stopping these two individuals from saying whatever they like. If that's true, then why not just formalize it? Why not just say, okay, what do you need? You know, you, you need a waiver for A, B, and C, or X, Y, and Z. Here it is. Go into the House of Commons. Go back to the Justice Committee. Get up on the corner of a, you know, uh, Bloor and, and, and Young in, in Toronto, say whatever you like, and then deal with that. But clearly, he doesn't want that to come to light. So that's my takeaway from this, is that there's something even worse to come. Tell us about what, uh, the, you know, what, what was the genesis and the decision that you made to respond and react as you did by keeping everybody busy overnight? Well, I'll back up a little bit. You know, we made the decision not to sit in the House of Commons and listen to the budget uh, because Justin Trudeau that earlier that day had shown his contempt for Parliament by shutting down the Justice Committee. So, you know, Bill Morneau came into the House, tabled his budget early, went out, started uh, doing media appearances uh, just hours after thumbing his nose at Parliament by shutting down the only public investigation. So we decided that we were not going to be used as props. If he was going to have that kind of contempt for Parliament, uh, we weren't going to just sit there and be an audience uh, for the government. Uh, and, uh, and so that's why we reacted to the budget the way we did. In terms of the voting, though, I actually would like to put this back on the Liberals themselves, because the first vote that evening, Wednesday evening, was on a motion to extend the waiver to allow Jody Wilson-Raybould to complete her testimony, to speak to the things that happened after January 14th and up until the time she resigned from Cabinet. Uh, the Liberals voted that down. That is what triggered all the other votes. So at any time throughout those two, two days, they could have got up and said, OK, we're going to extend the waiver. We're going to fully waive privilege, lift the gag order, and, uh, and, and it could have ended. So they preferred to keep their MPs there voting for almost 32 hours to pr- keep this cover-up going. It's really concerning, and I agree with you. It sounds very much like there's information that Mr. Trudeau will go to almost any lengths to keep from the Canadian people. And it sounds to me like, and as it does to you, that he's heavily engaged in that. That's why Jody Wilson-Raybould isn't speaking. That's why Jane Philpott said what she said. That's why uh, Selena Cesar Chavan uh, expressed her total disappointment and frustration with uh, with Mr. Trudeau. So let me ask you this, Mr. Shear. We have about a minute and a half left here. There's been speculation that Mr. Trudeau may feel so beleaguered that he may call a summer election uh, immediately after the Alberta election is finished. What do you say? 
Well, that would be a further sign of his well, would. Uh, de- de- desperation to prevent the truth from coming out. Uh, we, I will point out, we have fixed election laws on the books, so uh, he would have to break that law in order to do that. Uh, he's been accused of, of, of uh, certainly uh, coming very close to breaking the law on the SNC-Lavalin affair, so I think he should be very careful about considering that as an option. But look, we're, we'll be ready. It's, it's one of the, it's his choice as prime minister. It's our, our system gives him that ability. Uh, but as I said, you know, we do have those fixed election laws that he should respect. But if he does, we're ready. We've got uh, almost all our candidates nominated across the country. We have a few more to go in the next few weeks. And if he wants to go to the Canadian people in the immediate aftermath of this scandal, I'm, I'm fully prepared to do to do that. If he wants to have the next election, uh, a referendum on his uh, lack of ethics, his uh, corruption scandal, and his handling of, of the economy. You know, uh, more and more Canadians are telling me that life is getting harder and harder. It's harder yeah. to get ahead. Yeah. And, so you're making uh, it sound yeah, like the election yeah. started. I have 30 seconds left. What's, what, do you, what, what are you anticipating this coming week? Well, you know, we're going to continue to push. Uh, we have the Ethics Committee investigation starting on Tuesday. Uh, Justin Trudeau can decide to, uh, to to cooperate with that or not. Uh, we're going to be calling on the public to put pressure on that. That's that's really our next step is to make sure that the Ethics Committee investigation does not get shut down the way the Justice Committee one did. All right, Mr. Shears, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Scott Newark is uh, with us. He's going to be with us for a while this hour. Former Alberta prosecutor, also former head of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. He was the executive officer for the Canadian Police Association, as well as, as I said, a senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety. Scott, let me come back to the uh, to the issue of a, the sentencing yesterday of Jaskarit Singh Sidhu. We just spoke with Scott Thomas, the father of Evan, who was a Broncos player. Uh, that sentence... Fair, not so much. No option for the judge. Judge didn't exercise options she had. How do you how do you assess it? I think it was appropriate. I mean, it's uh, our sentencing system is essentially. Um, I think it's the, what I have described as the genius of our justice system. It's essentially this offender, this offense. So on the negative side, there is of course the horrific consequences of this guy's uh, uh, dangerous driving. Uh, on the uh, more positive side was that he took responsibility for it right away, uh, pled guilty, didn't put the families through it, and so the judge balances all of those uh, competing interests and um, reached what I thought was uh, an appropriate uh, sentence. Uh, you know, uh, whether it was a year or two less or more uh, depends on anyone's individual perspective, but I thought it was in the, within the appropriate range. Was it the judge's option to choose uh, consecutive sentencing had she wanted to? The judge could have done that, but I mean, just as an example, uh, each of those counts, the dangerous uh, uh, driving causing death, I believe, has a maximum of 14 years. Dangerous driving causing bodily harm has a maximum of 10 years. So, I mean, if she'd have awarded sentences that were all consecutive, the guy could have got a sentence of like, you know, 250 years or something, which was clearly not going to happen. And I don't think that there is anything inherently wrong at all in sort of lumping everything together, picking one um, collective sentence that reflects the different principles that I've talked about. Don't forget, though, as well, too, uh, you know, this is Canada. So the fact that the guy got eight years or 96 months. He is eligible for uh, full parole at one-third or 32 months and day parole six months in advance of that at uh, 26 months. And he's not going to do the eight years. 
I suspect, given this guy's what he's shown so far, I bet you he is uh, someone who gets uh, day parole in a couple of years from now. Now, he will be deported, right? He had, There's no option there. There is. He doesn't have uh, the options that other people would have had if they were found to have been um, uh, inadmissible. Because he received a criminal sentence of more than six months, he doesn't have the normal appeal me- uh, remedies that are available. But my understanding is that, uh, first of all, uh, let's even say that he's granted uh, you know, parole in uh, one-third of the sentence. Under our goofy Canadian law, he is not allowed to be removed until his full sentence is served. So in other words, even if he was released from custody, he would, because of the fact that he was still serving his sentence, albeit on parole, he would uh, be entitled to stay in the country. I think there is an overarching um, discretion within the minister to be able to, in effect, uh, put a hold on any uh, removal on humanitarian compassionate grounds. Um, and so that's one aspect that we'll have to, uh, to wait to see that plays out. But because of the sentence that he got, he has less rights of appeal, it, well, it, literally no rights of appeal of the, uh, of the deportation itself. Okay, before we take the break, I've got about 30 seconds. Do you, based on your experience, expect that things will significantly change as far as licensing and regulation is concerned? You know, that's one of the things that I, I took away from watching uh, some of the uh, the families interviewed. I, I was so impressed with, the, with those people. Where they're talking about that, about the importance of learning from this kind of an incident and changing, you know, public policy so it never happens again. Very, very impressive people. Hold on. We'll come back with Scott Newark, and we'll get at what happened in Ottawa. So I was looking at a, at a, at a column, a piece in the, uh, the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, site, that's mcdonaldlaurier.ca, getting past the politics of the SNC-Lavalin case, new MLI commentary, and the commentary is written by our good friend Scott Newark, who stayed with us, the uh, former um, prosecutor in Alberta. I have a question about that in just a second for you, Scott. Former executive officer for the Canadian Police Association. Also a senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety and professor at Simon Fraser University. Here's the question, out of the gate. Were you ever interfered with when you were a prosecutor? Um, well, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. I uh, don't have uh, solicitor-client privilege or can Oh, wait, no, I guess I can, yeah. Um, uh, yes, there were. I, I actually thought about this myself. Uh, there were two instances that I experienced. Uh, where I would uh, it would probably be described as political interference. That's with a small p. One was laughable. It was I happened to be the prosecutor that um, uh, ran the trial on a, guy, a young guy who was convicted of driving while suspended because his uh, uh, license he'd accumulated so many tickets that his license got suspended. And he said he didn't get the notice, but the notice was sent to what his registered address was, which is what the law said was acceptable, and so he was convicted. And, you know, just a routine kind of a case. And it got all into the news because the guy who was the accused happened to be the son of the premier at the time, and he decided that it was an outrage that he, as the son of the premier, should be convicted. So it got into all of the news, and we had this idiot of a bureaucrat, an assistant deputy minister, who took it upon himself. And he, it, this was not something initiated by either the premier or the minister, but he, I'm sure he perceived it to be sort of a career-advancing move, that he created a policy and sent it out to all of the offices to say that if 
somebody, a family member uh, or a person, sibling of, uh, I think it was a cabinet minister, was charged that we had to notify head office. It was ridiculous to have something like that. You don't create that kind of a special treatment. And uh, by some remarkable coincidence, the, the fact that he had issued this directive got into the media, and it ultimately, of course, got uh, taken down. Uh, the other one actually involved the same guy, and I won't get into all of the details. It's, it's, it's complicated, but the bottom line was I was uh, uh, moving forward and supporting the, the local uh, uh, police. It was on a case that potentially could have exposed some uh, absolutely bungled conduct of the RCMP previously that involved the most senior management in the uh, in the province, and I had shut down their operation. Uh, and the guy that was involved was still committing crimes, and so we were proceeding with those crimes, and I got called up to be yelled at supposedly on something else by the same assistant deputy minister. And while I was there, I got handed this note, and he told me that the senior command had, you know, filed a complaint against me. And the, it, was, it was funny because the guy who was the new uh, officer commanding in the, uh, in the division in Alberta had actually, they had said that I was, quote, not acting in the best interest of the RCMP. And the, the new officer commanding had actually written on the file, he said, well, actually, he doesn't work for the RCMP. But it reached the point where I literally had to look at this assistant deputy minister and say one more word out of your effing mouth and I will go down and swear an information against you for attempted obstruction of justice. And so we went ahead with the case. The guy was successfully convicted. But those were instances where I've personally experienced that, where somebody attempts to for um, – and, you know, it, these weren't illegal purposes. Nobody was getting envelopes full of cash or anything. This was just somebody doing the wrong thing and interfering with prosecutorial discretion, which, as we've talked about for years on your show, is a cornerstone of our entire justice system. Yeah. And that is, in part, what is in play here. It's more complex in this SNC-Lavalin case. But that is, at the core of this, is an interference with the discretion being exercised by the prosecutors and the problems that it causes. And that's why when I wrote the piece, as you know, frequently when I'm looking at uh, cases, and we, we've discussed this over the years, instead of just pointing out the wrongs, I think it's always worthwhile to look and say, okay, what changes could we make? What lessons could be learned from this so we don't make these kinds of mistakes again? Because as you have, I think, correctly described in your introduction to this, we are in the middle of a political firestorm here that has no signs of going away anymore. You know, I can't recall a week, never mind a week, I can't recall a, a longer period of time on a specific issue where there was many explosive quotes and as yeah. many in explosive insertions into the overall situation as we experienced over five days. Yeah, and including, you know, from people within the caucus and senior uh, former ministers. That's exactly. what makes this particularly unique. And I think the most damning thing this week was actually the comments of the CEO of SNC-Lavalin, because what it does is undercut the rationale of what the prime minister and his officials you know, were supposedly relying on to try to get Judy Wilson-Raybould to change her mind. Although I would just offer one caution. I went and looked this morning at the statements made by him. What he actually has said is that he never, you know, said that or gave that information to Justin Trudeau. Um, did they make some kind of a claim like that in trying to seek the deferred prosecution agreement? We don't know because we don't know why specifically
specifically, the director of public prosecutions turned down the request. Mm -hmm. That's part of the problem here. We don't know whether or not that an explanation for that is well, whether it was considered. What we do know is that Jody Wilson-Raybould has said more information needs to be shared. What we do know is that Jane Philpott has underscored that. What we do know is that uh, Selena uh, Cesar Chavan uh, appears to be lining up with, she certainly has her own issues with the Prime Minister, but she's, she appears to be lining up with both Jody Wilson-Raybould and, and Jane Philpott. And we know the Prime Minister can't do anything about it. He is essentially powerless. He can't remove them from the caucus because that would create, I think, more of a, uh, a head to a heading for the exit by members of the caucus. I, you know, just talking politics here a second, it's, if I'm just looking at the situation from the outside, which I am, uh, I'm saying there's a concentrated effort taking place within the Liberal Party of Canada to remove Mr. Trudeau as the leader of the party. Um, I don't know how else to interpret what I'm seeing. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, just I, my I don't view. Uh, necessarily disagree with you, but I, I don't know that uh, there is sufficient evidence to establish that. I think there's a well, question. Scott, what, uh, what, other, what, other, what other conclusion do you draw? Pushback. Well, it's, yeah, right it, from the get-go, Roy, I've thought this this whole thing, and I've worked in you know around ministers' offices, yeah. both the provincial and federal level. This has struck me right from the beginning as a clash of egos. But there's more. There's more to this. Remember, we've also got Admiral Mark Norman's case moving yes, forward. I think that one might be, frankly, more significant. And I'm going to be this speaking. One looks to me more like. Uh, situation of the you know the cover up being worse than what was actually done. You know, I, I, given what's been what's been what's taken place with it, with the five to four votes on the Justice Committee yes. again this past week, what's been said by Jody Wilson-Raybould, her letter which says she's going to make available texts and emails, which support her testimony of of last month at the Justice Committee. Again, Jane Philpot, the timing was absolutely. If you're if you're if you're not a Trudeau loyalist, it was exquisite timing. If you're a Trudeau loyalist, it was horrible timing. It's not good for the party, and it just seems to me to be something going on. They're trying to move him toward the exit. Yeah, and, and I think he's. I think he. I think he could be following Wernick and Butts. There is some uh, now pushback from the party against them. You've got a couple of uh, you know fairly longtime liberals in Judy Scrow and John McKay. Uh, I know John. He's a pretty sharp guy. Uh, challenging uh, the, both Philpot and Wilson Raybolt, uh, you know, uh, uh, speak up or shut up. Well, let her speak up. Sure. You listen. Then let her speak up. Yeah. My sense, Roy, is that what you're going to hear or what you're going to see in the uh, the materials that she submits is going to be uh, a contradiction of the evidence of uh, Gerald Butts and Michael Wernick in the sense of, oh, it was just a misunderstanding, to try to show that there was a sense of, of greater, you know, veiled threats, and possibly even that those veiled threats uh, went on longer mm -hmm. and included, uh, you know, possibly uh, after she had been removed and they were contemplating making the decision about granting uh, the deferred agreement uh, with the new attorney general. In I should at this point point out to everybody, remind everyone, that at the top of the next hour, we're going to be joined by Andrew Scheer, the Conservative Party leader, who will provide us his perspective sitting across the aisle from the Prime Minister about what happened over the last week in Parliament and the Conservatives' reaction to the Liberals' reaction. Now, in your piece, and I just tweeted out, by the way, the link, it's on my uh, Twitter feed, at the Roy Green Show, so you can read Scott's uh, commentary. 
at mcdonaldlaurier.ca, but you can just go to the link on my Twitter account, at the Roy Green Show. Now, it says here, according to Newark, there are several actions that the government could consider in order to prevent a repeat incident. His recommendations to the government include, what are you telling him to do? Um, learn from what transpired here and what caused the problems. This started for me when I uh, was trying to figure out, right at the very beginning of this story, SNC Lavalin was not complaining about the fact of the prosecution. It was that they, uh, because of the way the system worked, they would suffer a ban on bidding on federal contracts. And there were contradictory reports to the media. One said it was 10 years, one said it could be five years. But I looked at the two statutes involved, the criminal code, the uh, amendments that were made, uh, that came into effect in September 2018 that allowed for these kinds of agreements. It's not in there as a consequence under the corruption of uh, uh, foreign uh, public officials. It's not in there. Dug around for a while and found that it, it's literally an internal government policy about uh, uh, contract pr- procurement under what they call their integrity program, which itself has been under review since 2017. And they announced that they intend to make changes to it. It was supposed to be in this month, in March, that would have allowed for greater discretion. So, I mean, when I read that, my first thought was, if that's the case, why on earth did somebody not point that out as the remedy or the solution to this? Okay, so you don't get all entangled in the criminal justice system and the criminal prosecutions. And, I mean, I still don't know the answer to that question. This is what I I say. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, the solution uh, became, well, we've got to get this deferred prosecution agreement instead of somebody saying, well, wait a minute, let's look for all of the tools that are actually available and Mm -hmm. this is one that could be done. John Iverson wrote uh, about that, and his answer was about why Trudeau did it, because he could. Yeah, well, then he was getting very bad advice, okay? And similarly... The um, director of public prosecutions under the legislation uh, of the, of, that creates their office under Section 13 issued what's called a public interest notice to the minister about this case. Okay. Now, there's nothing in the statute that says that that information can't be shared. There is a directive that says it's a communication between the director and the attorney general. But she never made that information available, for example, that would have explained why the decision was being made. And, we, and to this day, Roy, we don't know this. Did it include consideration of, of the uh, potential job loss? That information was never given to the Prime Minister's office. It was never given to the Clerk of the Privy Council office. The statute itself that allows for this, that was you know, uh, put into that budget bill and passed in 2018, which uh, created these uh, uh, deferred prosecution agreements, uh, guess what? That was drafted by and approved by the Minister of Justice, Judy Wilson-Raybould, and it contains completely contradictory criteria for whether to grant it or not to grant it in terms of... Uh, economic consideration. So it's badly drafted legislation. She never gave, and there's no requirement, if she said, she has said repeatedly, that, look, I said I made up my mind, I'm not going to intervene, which again I would suggest we should look at why should the Attorney General have the right to intervene and give a direction on a, a prosecution of a particular case. It didn't exist what, for, for me as a prosecutor. Um, but she never gave a direction, you know, said, look, I've made up my mind, here's the considerations, and that there was a policy in place so that other ministers knew they couldn't just say, or the prime minister's office, or the clerk of the Privy Council. Yeah, Scott, I've got, I've got, 15, or, I've got 15 or 20 seconds here. 
Well, there's things, there are lessons to be learned from this, and I hope we start to change the focus so that this doesn't happen again because it's eroding public confidence in our justice system. Well, it is, and it's eroding public confidence in the governing yes, uh, of this country so let's at a time we can't afford it. it doesn't happen again and get it done. Okay, my friend, thank you for the time. Okay. Scott Newark. In the United States, there's a whole lot of activity going on. Satisfaction from the White House, frustration and anger from mainstream U.S. media and celebrities as the Mueller report is uh, filed. And now no new indictments are to come after a long and very expensive investigation into whether there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia during the 2016 federal U.S. election. Fran Coombs joins us, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports national U.S. polling firm and former editor of the Washington Times. Boy, we've been on some wild rides together, Fran. It just gets more amazing, doesn't it? <laughs> I have to say, Roy, this this Mueller thing, though, is really, I think you and me, it's no surprise to us. But I think for the Democrats who have built up this narrative in their mind, uh, uh, they were shocked by the results. So can you just, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a brief manner, describe and explain to us what exactly has the former FBI director delivered? Well, at this point, I mean, all we know is that he has delivered his report to the attorney general uh, and that he has called for no new indictments. Uh, none, none of the details have leaked out yet that I've seen in any news reports. Uh, Barr has, the, the attorney general has yet to uh, brief senators uh, about the report. Once he starts briefing some people uh, on the findings and what, if anything, he plans to do from here, that's when stuff will start leaking out. But really all we know is is that Mueller um, was a special appointee, uh, has been investigating this for two years, and uh, but obviously from the reaction we're seeing, there's going to be no indictment of President Trump or anybody close to him. Which is great news for the White House, which is what Donald Trump's been saying all along, but leaves the main Mainstream media and the left in the United States, a, plop, a pop, a, whatever that word is, a popoplectic. Apocalyptic. <laughs> I can't say that word. Yeah, no, no, you're right. You're absolutely apoplectic. The, uh, the apoplectic. There you go. One of us got it. Um, yeah, well, Roy, it's again. They have they have been building this narrative for two years now, or more than two years. And it's, I mean, that was their explanation for why the great Hillary Clinton lost, of course, was Russian collusion, right? Dirty tricks. Right. Uh, and so now, oh, my God, did the American people really choose Donald Trump over uh, Hillary Clinton on a relatively level playing field? Uh, that, that, and they've been building this narrative with all these stories, many of which we know have turned out to be false. Uh, and they've come to believe it. I mean, they, they, they believe their own lies, if you will. And so now that this thing has come out and has turned out to be a nothing burger, um, they're all in shock. So, Fran, New York State says they're continuing to investigate. I think they're investigating whether Mr. Trump was truthful about what, how much money he had when he got bank loans. And Adam Schiff, the chair of the Intel Committee of the House, Democrat, is vowing more investigations of Trump and maybe calling Mueller before his committee. All right. Well, you know they're not going to give this up because this, I mean, really, this is uh, this is 
been their big political tool for two years now. So you can expect, I mean, they'll, first you'll start to see some criticism here and there of Mueller. They'll be reminding people now that he's a Republican. Uh, there'll be all kinds of questions about the legitimacy of the investigation, this, that, and the other. Uh, and these same folks who were cheering Mueller on as recently as a couple of weeks ago will now be starting to damn him. Um, interestingly, I, um, we did a survey um, about a month ago, and we asked folks if Mueller comes up with nothing, if he fails to prove that the Trump campaign has not, you know, didn't prove the collusion thing, should congressional Democrats do their own investigation? Uh, and only 29% of voters said, yeah, if, if Mueller, even if Mueller comes up with nothing, Democrats should keep going. So 64% of people said, no, no way, this should be the end of it. That's a big number. What, what, does, yeah. uh, what does Mueller's report do to political ambitions of some of the more high-profile Democratic candidates? Well, again, these people will, you know, they will deal in smoke and mirrors, you know that. I mean, you know, they're, they're, going to, they're out there promising free everything under the sun with no price tags attached. So they're not going to have any difficulty blurring the lines on this report, uh, counting on, on people not to, most people not to delve into the details. Uh, so I suspect that they will go, they will just mention that Trump's been investigated and all these questions have been raised, and then they will say something like, and they haven't been satisfactorily answered, or they haven't been fully answered, or something like that. So they'll leave it kind of hanging out there. I was looking at a panel of four people. It was just a video clip of, uh, I think it was on CNN last night. And none of them could actually say the words, or they, they had great difficulty saying the words, that there are no indictments planned. It's just like the words wouldn't come. They were so distraught over what well, they found. Rachel, Rachel Maddow was almost crying on screen. Maybe that's what I saw. But, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 pathetic. But I mean, again, their whole worldview, as I was saying earlier, their whole worldview is wrapped up in this false narrative. Uh, and if if the narrative is indeed false, then what does that tell us about the 2016 election? What does that tell us about Trump's popularity, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And uh, the American people, uh, your polling shows, don't want the Democrats to move forward with their own. Uh, further investigation. So it's all fascinating stuff. And we've got our own issues in Canada now. Yeah, no, very. I've been following that very interestingly. <laughs> I see the Prime Minister's got some problems. Serious problems. Serious problems. Fran, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time today. Okay, I always enjoy it, Roy. Take care. Bye-bye. Fran Coons, Managing Editor of Rasmussen Polling in the United States and former editor of the Washington Times. <laughs> The Alberta election campaign is underway as Albertans choose their next government on the 16th of April. The NDP launching personal attacks, you just heard that on Jason Kenney. Is that the only realistic chance for the New Democrats? What will Albertans be focusing on? Alicia Corbella joins me, senior columnist with the Calgary Herald. You know I'm a big fan of yours, eh? <laughs> Thanks, for Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Is this campaign about issues? Is it about personality? What's going to, uh, what, what are Albertans want from this campaign, Lisa? Well, I think the NDP are running basically a campaign of uh, personality or trying to, they're just basically uh, smearing, trying to smear Jason Kenney. Uh, they can't run on their record. Albertans are very unhappy with their record. 
And um, so they're they're running a, a fear and smear campaign, the NDP are, the governing NDP. And the UCP, um, even though they're way ahead in the polls, they're basically coming out with new policies and, and um, that kind of thing almost every day. And so, and have been doing for quite some time. So uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't think so far the smear and fear campaign of the NDP against the United Conservative Party is working. The polls show that um, still, so far, the UCP are way ahead in the polls over the ruling NDP government in Alberta. So what are the issues, then, that will most hound Rachel Notley? Uh, is it her signing on to Trudeau's pitch early on and then getting burned by Trudeau? Yeah, you know, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think the thing that um, Rachel Notley, I think Albertans were willing to give Rachel Notley the benefit of the doubt with regard to her approach to um, getting a better deal with Ottawa and um, trying to get pipelines built and um, that kind of thing. She brought in a carbon tax that she never um, campaigned on in 2015. Um, just about five months after she became premier, in came a carbon tax. She increased corporate taxes at a time when oil prices were low, and she brought in a royalty review, which spooked the um, oil patch. And uh, Alberta has lost about a hundred billion dollars in planned investment. One hundred billion dollars. <laughs> And so, um, crazy number. They're looking at that. You know, Roy, confidence in the business sector is so important if business is going to invest. And if they think that the that the rules are constantly going to be changed to their detriment, they're not going to invest. They're going to take their capital somewhere else. And we've seen that North Dakota, Texas, um, other parts of the world are getting this money and this capital investment. It's not staying in Alberta. I'm going to be speaking with Goldie Hyder at uh, top of the next hour, the CEO wow. of the Business Council of Canada, right? 150, mm-hmm. top 150 corporations in, in this country, um, 1.7 million employees for all, you know, combined. And one of the issues that I know Mr. Hyder wants to raise is Western alienation. And then, and, and, and then there's, Leisha, there's the, uh, there's the Enveronics poll, which was just released, and Veronica's uh, uh, points to rising political alienation in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Atlantic Canada resentment that Ottawa ignores at its own peril. Yeah. So, you know, the alienation um, question, I mean, it, it comes around every once in a while in Alberta when it when things are, are really bad. Like, people are really suffering here in Alberta. We've got the highest unemployment rate in the country, for big cities, for major cities in in the country, and um, you know, for instance, I have a I have a, a neighbor. He's a geologist, and he's lost his job. He's driving a school bus now. I mean, that you hear that a lot. He doesn't even make it into the unemployment rolls. <laughs> he doesn't count because he's got a job. Because he's got a job. Yeah. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of people hurting and just try, scraping by trying to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that for Albertans, all they want is um, the rest of the country to sort of recognize the kind of impact the taxes Albertans pay have on the country. 
So the, the vast majority of the transfer payments that go into the federal government come from Alberta, and that's just a fact. I mean, it's about $20 billion a year, even now during hard times. And, um, and so, you know, I think a lot of that comes from the oil patch because these are good-paying jobs, high-paying jobs. And so, you know, are we a country or aren't we a country? Like, uh, if we can't, if the federal government can't live up to its side of the commitment to help get pipelines built and the right-of-way through to the coast, then, like, what's going on? So there is a lot of disaffection and, you know, separation. um, There are people who, who are in favor of separation in Alberta, but I think it's more sort of... To be honest, I think it's sort of like what Quebec does, which is threaten separation and get a, get a bunch of things that you want, such as a pipeline <laughs> for Alberta. So I think if once the pressure is released, I think Albertans will feel a lot better about things. I sure hope so. Can Jason Kenney lose this election? Well, you know, there is a scandal um, sort of lurking about, and it's about... Um, well, it's quite complicated. It's about running a sort of a stalking horse. Right, the kamikaze case, right? The kamikaze yeah. candidate um, scandal, it's called. It's quite complicated, and it's sort of internal politics. It's the internal politics of the United Conservative Party, um, the, the leadership campaign. As we know over the history, you, you and I are old enough, Roy, to understand this. Leadership campaigns are often the ugliest part of politics. They yes. get really vicious. I mean, we think Cretchen Martin, we think um, um, Brian Mulroney and Joe Clark. And, you know, I mean, these are um, issues that often divide parties for a long time. Well, Jason Kenney won. Uh, the UCP leadership by a huge margin over Brian Jean, who was the Wild Rose uh, leader, and um, a fella called Jeff Calloway ran as a stalking horse, or you know, to, to sort of um, take pot shots at Brian Jean and his record, so that um, Kenny could re- remain above the fray. They're both denying this. Kenny and 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 uh, Jeff Calloway are denying this. But it appears that there is some evidence to that with this huge document dump that shows, like, um, the two campaigns um, collaborating quite a bit um, on video and uh, speaking notes and that kind of thing. It doesn't seem to be resonating, though. I had a neighbor the other day. I was was out for a walk, and we ran into this fellow who was walking his dog, and he stopped to ask me, you know, what do you think about this scandal? And I said, um, well, you know, it's... I, I think it's it's not a good thing, but um, it doesn't seem to be affecting the polls. And he said, "I'm voting UCP." And he says, "If they had, if Jason Kenney was an axe murderer, I'd probably still vote for him." So. Sounds like a Donald Trump quote. <laughs> I could I could walk. What was it? What he said? I was on Broadway. I could shoot five people. Whatever it was, the yeah, crazy quote that, that he made in, in two thousand. Yeah. Well, we're going to look very carefully because the whole country is watching what's going on in uh, in Alberta, and in some ways, it could be a bit of a precursor um, as to what's going to happen in October, federally at least philosophically. I, Alicia, thank you so much for for the time, and uh, hope we can have you back. Anytime, Roy. Thanks so much. Alicia Corbella, senior columnist with the Calgary Herald.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 